The Jewish views on Hurricane Harvey as Texas picks up the pieces. How has it affected the Jewish community over there? Hampstead and Highgate Literary Festival. The annual event is heading to JW3, but what can we expect from this year? And memory songs. We learn about the award-winning film that shows the amazing work LJS do with onset dementia patients. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. International Jewish groups have offered assistance to victims of Hurricane Harvey, which has devastated parts of Texas. Dozens of Jewish families in Houston had to leave their homes and went to shelters in Austin and Dallas. They'll get help from the Israeli humanitarian charity Israel, which has sent a delegation. The Jewish outreach group Chabad set up a relief fund in Houston and prepared food and made sure aid reached those in need. Many of the families affected by the floods this time went through the same thing in 2015 and 2016. The new head of Hamas says his radical Palestinian organization has re-established its relationship with Iran and is benefiting from financial and military aid as a result. Yahiye Sinwar claimed that Tehran helps the military wing of Hamas by having thousands of people make rockets and dig tunnels every day. In Israel, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, told the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, that Iran is building missile bases in Syria and wants to use both Syria and Lebanon in its goal of eradicating Israel. The unsolved murder of a popular Palestinian political cartoonist on the streets of South Kensington 30 years ago is to be reinvestigated. Naji Salim Hussein al-Ali was shot as he walked to his office but the gunman and his accomplice were never caught. Al-Ali was critical of the Palestine Liberation Organization and the Israeli and US governments, but most commentators assumed it was the PLO who killed him. The Metropolitan Police believe that after three decades, somebody might now come forward with new information. The Conservative Friends of Israel have led their first-ever delegation of Welsh Tories to Israel. The group took part in a series of high-level meetings with Israeli politicians, academics and journalists. They also visited Yad Vashem, the National Holocaust Museum, toured Magan David Adom, Israel's National Emergency Service, and the first Palestinian-planned city of Rawabi. And finally, the Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg has announced the birth of his second daughter, where else but on his own social media site. He and his wife Priscilla Chan have called the new arrival August. Lucky she wasn't born in December. That's the news. The sport is next with Andrew. Thanks, Viv. This weekend sees the start of the new Jewish football season as 29 teams get set to do battle across three divisions over the next nine months. While the number of teams taking part continues to decline, league chairman David Wolfe is hopeful a new development officer can not only help reverse the slide, but also look at ways of adding more teams to the league. Staying with football... Israel faced two must-win games over the next few days if they're to keep alive any remaining hopes of qualifying for next summer's World Cup in Russia. Hosting Macedonia before travelling to Italy, Elisha Levy's side have to win both games to stand any chance of finishing in the top two of the group, which could see them qualify for a further playoff tie. And finally, Dudi Seller, Israel's only senior player at this year's US Open, has been knocked out of the tournament. Beaten in straight sets by American Sam Keary, 
Israeli interest will though continue into the second week of the tournament, with Yishai Uliel set to compete in the junior competition. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let us start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Ooh, the Dream News team returns after several weeks. Welcome to you both. Well, let us start off, as we always do, with a look at the front page in particular. And we have two stories. We have a photo of the late and truly great Princess Diana on the front page. I'm assuming that we are obviously marking 20 years since her passing. Yes, 20 years ago this very week, Princess Diana tragically dying in a car crash in Paris. We have been looking through her Jewish history as it is, speaking to community leaders about any experiences they may have had with her. Very famously, back in 1985, she uh, was at an event with Ravenswood residents, uh, obviously now part of Norwood, and we've got recollections of the charity and the uh, the special occasion they all celebrated then, and the head of that charity saying that she made everyone feel special. She also attended in 1995, years later, an event for the Jewish Welfare Board at the Guildhall. So didn't do a lot of of Jewish work in her time, but certainly left an impression with those that she did. Well, although I never met her myself, I know that my parents were at a dinner held by the chap who was responsible for my delivery when my mother had me, was also the same chap responsible for Princes William and Harry when they were born. So he had a dinner when he retired and Princess Diana was invited as guest of honour at that dinner. And they just said that as soon as she walked through the doors, the whole room Mm. silence and just in awe of this person who walked in we're going slightly off script here were you born in the lindo wing i was oh so you're virtual royalty <laughs> i wouldn't go that far but it is true that i was born in lindo wing of st mary's I, that about you. I know right you learn something new I every was day northwick park <laughs> they're all Which, free for me <clears throat> look do you know what of equal measure as far as i'm concerned <laughs> the difference was is you didn't run up a massive bill at the end of it anyway we digress ever so slightly there is another story on the front page which is slightly more to do with the community and it is Jewish group sensationalizes anti-Semitism, says JLC chief. This is an in-community row. Yeah, it's a communal storm in a teacup. Simply put, the Jewish Leadership Council's head, Simon Johnson, has reacted to a activist group called the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, which did a lot of good work back in 2014 when temperatures were rising over Gaza. You may remember they did a lot of excellent work on behalf of the Jewish community. They did a uh, survey last week, revealed lots of different things. The headline was that one in three Jews have considered leaving the UK because of anti-Semitism. And um, our position, along with that of Simon Johnson, has been to perhaps question that. I mean, we've all considered doing lots of different things in our life. I've considered selling up and uh, buying a vineyard in France or joining the French Foreign Legion or going to Disneyland. We've all considered things. We're not going to be doing that thing. No one's packing their bags. So Simon has, in his wisdom, suggested that perhaps that's overemphasis, slight hyperbole. And now the campaign against anti-Semitism and some other grassroots activists have suggested he may apologise or resign, which is obviously slightly going overboard, but they've taken none too well to Mr Johnson's criticism. Oh dear. 
a storm in a teacup, Justin. So will it just blow away, do we hope? I think when many people read the story, they they all say, you know, why, why is it on the front page? The fact is that this is the first time that a significant disquiet about the CAA that's been bubbling under the surface has emerged into something more public. It would appear the CAA, which, as Richard says, started in the wake of the, the Gaza conflict when temperatures were, were very high. They organised a very prominent, very successful rally outside the Royal Courts of Justice. They've also been pursuing some cases where the CPS have perhaps not pursued potential culprits as much as they ought to have done, and they've won some successes in that area. But I, I think you know, there, there's two ways of, of leading. One is that kind of in-your-face, very uncompromising approach and then there's the approach that the mainstream the community have which is you know to establish relationships with these organizations not to constantly criticize law enforcement and so on and, and, and achieve the success that many organizations the CST in particular but the board the JLC the approach they take has also achieved many many successes and perhaps is more effective in the longer term I think on behalf of the community there's perhaps time when you can have both. But uh, will this disappear? I don't think the CAA is necessarily going to disappear. I think they may have to find more of an accommodation, if at all possible. But you know, we've made clear in our in our leader this week that, that Simon Johnson has been a, a very effective and, and, and measured, I would say, leader and spokesman of the Jewish community, one of the most effective. And certainly uh, you know, the calls for him to resign aren't anything that are going to stick around for very long. <laughs> Well, hopefully one thing the campaign against anti-Semitism will be quite pleased to hear is that according to, I'm not quite sure who this individual is, but you're going to divulge in just a moment, there is no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So that is good news. Chris Williamson, the shadow fire minister within Jeremy Corbyn's front bench, claimed in an interview with The Guardian this week that claims of anti-Semitism within the party are smears. And another word, which I, I shan't repeat on air, He's since clarified and said that you know he, he's in no way belittling anti-Semitism. He recognises that there are cases of anti-Semitism, but that on occasion those have been used for party political factional arguments within the Labour Party, within the Labour movement. But this is probably the most high profile person, I would say, in recent times within the Corbyn inner circle who suggested that that the, the anti-Semitism claims aren't genuine, aren't real, aren't serious, and, and in some way should be downplayed or questioned. The fact is that people on the left need to learn that, like with any other form of racism, if, if, if the perception of the victim is that this is problematic, that needs to be taken seriously and not downplayed in this way. And particularly at this time when there are so many sensitivities between the Labour Party and the Jewish community, these kind of comments are only going to set things back. At a time where I understand that the leadership would like to try and find a productive way, as much as possible, way forward. Well, we have precisely one minute left to cover two more stories. So let's go for this. We'll do one minute per story, shall we? We'll start with Scrabble Champion. I believe that, Richard, you're a bit of a fan of Scrabble, but who is in the paper? It's not you. David Eldar is the new World Scrabble Champion. The man is a genius he won it this week his uh, number one word which got a whopping 74 points was carols that's c-a-r-r-e-l-s i i defy many of our learned listeners 
to know what carols means. I think it's something like a, a, a pointy desk or something that you put objects on. I had to... I don't think I've ever scored 74 points in Scrabble in total, never mind with one word. No, no. I mean, I I love the game. It's uh, my go-to board game. I'm just looking at some of the amazing words that came up on this final. He won 3-0 against a Sri Lankan. There are words like asincos, A-S-I-N-I-C-O-S, trolleys, that's trolleys, not trolleys, T-R-O-E-L-I-E-S. I'll give you one more, am, A-M-E. Right. Answers on a postcard, or better still, I would say answers to studio at jewishviews.co.uk if you've got the faintest idea what on earth we've just talked about. One of them, actually, is is modern street slang, obsv, which obviously is... Oh, obvs, yeah, obviously. It's an abbreviation of obviously, which is obviously now in in the Oxford Dictionary, so that's allowed in Scrabble as well. I'll be using quite a few of these, I think, when I play my dad on Sunday. (laughs) <laughs> oh, obviously. Okay, and Justin, just finally, Norwood Shop at Selfridges. What's this? Yes, uh, they say that good news doesn't make headlines, but on this occasion and, and in so many occasions when it comes to interfaith and, and cooperation between faiths, we like to highlight that in our pages. This is Norwood teaming up with a number of other faith charities across the faith communities, including Islamic Relief, to form the first ever interfaith shop in the UK. This is taking place on a temporary basis at Selfridges on the third floor. Apparently that's quite prestigious, I'm told. And it opens now for uh, two months until the end of October. And it's a fantastic initiative and, and, and is gaining quite a lot of traction, quite a lot of interest in the media. So it's good to see. Terrific. Head on down to Selfridges and have a look at that. Obviously, other department stores are available. Obsfer. Obvs, sorry, obvs, other department stores are available. And obvs, that's all we've got time for, for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. And do not forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. International Jewish groups have offered assistance to victims of Hurricane Harvey, which devastated parts of Texas over last weekend. Many of us would have seen the devastation on the news coverage, but what's it like to have seen it for yourself? Joining me now on the line is Jane Manister, an expat who lives in Texas. Jane, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. Could you perhaps start by... I suppose setting the scene, could you maybe tell us a bit about what residents were told in the run-up to Harvey actually striking? People in the last few years in Texas have been very aware that when there's an emergency, it's for real. The big hurricane Katrina happened 12 years ago this week, and that was what changed everybody's recognition that an emergency really was an emergency. It was televised all the time, on radio, on all the media, that a very big hurricane was going to hit. And people were advised to get out and drive north. The hurricane was expected to hit between Houston in a curve round the Gulf of Mexico going southward. And remembering Katrina and later than that, a big hurricane called Rita, people got in their cars and drove if they could. But we all recognize when you're told to move, if you don't have the wherewithal to stay in a hotel or friends or relatives, you drive north to nowhere. So a lot of people, although they knew there was an emergency, did local emergency preparation without actually being able to move, even if they wished. 
And how do the people of Texas respond to it? I'm guessing, and also this probably goes for America wide, but I know that you live in Texas and that's how you're speaking to us and why you're speaking to us about this. But how do the people of Texas respond to such warnings? Is it a case now that you recognise that you must stay regimented, focused and get on with it? Or is there fear and terror like one would expect there to be? No, because we have highways, we have roads, we have resources. There was not terror out of the region where the hurricane is expected to hit. And always people feel if they live on higher ground in the better parts of town, as it were, their chances of being hurt or property being destroyed are less. But in this case, the destruction has happened, whatever your socioeconomic situation, the rich have suffered as much as the poor, in other words. Terrible areas have been hit. Terrible. Well, that's interesting you say that because my next question was actually going to be based on does it take an event like this to unite people of all different backgrounds? Because I'd imagine that Texas, as you've already alluded to, has different levels of society, whether they be rich, whether they be poor. I also imagine it makes up quite a few different faith communities as well. Has this brought everyone close together, would you say? People have cooperated with each other across all levels. It's been fantastic, the cooperation and the spirit. Just wonderful. So tell us a little bit about the relief efforts, because I know that we've seen in the news here that, say, the Jewish community have been doing their part to help in the relief efforts there. And I'd imagine that obviously it's it's irrelevant. Obviously, the program we're on is the Jewish views, and that's obviously what we are interested in per se. But what about the relief effort as a whole? What have you experienced and what has happened since Harvey hit? Well, the shelter, we're in Dallas, which is 200 miles north of Houston, and we're not being affected by the weather, but we're certainly inundated with people. Each shelter that opens is very quickly filled, even here 200 miles north. The shelters are mostly in recreation centers, so there are big parking areas filled with cars, nice cars, poor cars, old cars, new cars. And the shelters are filling as people come in, but the Red Cross is manning the shelters and they're all observing Red Cross protocol. And I know that you you yourself have been involved in the Red Cross, haven't you? Yes, I've done shelter management and mass feeding and damage assessment, all of it, not for several years. When Before we moved to Dallas, I did that. But all these people coming in as our school year began, they are already enrolling kids in local schools, giving them their uniform, giving them school supplies. So there's been incredible mobility of all relief energy. They have also got something new, which is mobile shower units. It used to be people had to shower in high school gymnasia. Now they've got shower units because of our climate and because how how grungy you get when you've been spending a day or two in floods. People need showers. We're providing them. So that's a big step forward. The Jewish Federation here and the Union of Reform Judaism, that's Jewish Federation of Dallas and Union of Reform Judaism, are very secure places to give donations because, of course, money is a primary need. Our Jewish Family Service 
is doing everything from giving vouchers for clothing in their thrift shop to medication assistance and whatever family counseling is needed. The Green Family Camp, which is mostly a kids' summer camp, which is about 100 miles south of Dallas, is housing the evacuees also, and they're organizing a day camp in collaboration with Temple Emmanuel in Houston. So the Jewish services are very mobilized to help. You know, what really um, strikes me about all of this is that I I can't believe how quick we are to turn off from the news and then pretend that everything carries on as normal because if you think of what happened with Katrina obviously at the time of Hurricane Katrina there was massive press coverage of it and then it sort of fizzled away from the news but obviously the clear up operation took years it took a long time to recover from it and I think all too often it's easy for everyone to forget that the clear up operation can be just as devastating as the actual effects of the storm itself. People are not going to be able to go home because they don't have homes. If you've seen the television, you see boats cruising down the creeks and the rivers which have overflowed. I saw a father moving his two children along in a picnic cooler where where people put their beer and their drinks for picnics. Yes, the drinks cooler. They're heavy duty and they've been as well as the boats and the dinghies and everything, I saw a father pushing his kids safely in one of those. The devastation is lasting. And another thing that one has to realize is that the shelters are pretty horrible. Although you're well taken care of and fed and cleaned and so on, it's very depressing. And local people here in Dallas are doing what they can to provide ways that people can get out of shelters, not for long, for a day. The zoo is free. Uber drivers are free. So that there are ways that people who are stuck in the shelters can get out for a few hours. But we've none of us any idea of what's going to happen in the future. We know what stuff is needed. People are bringing so many things in, everything from nappies to blankets to toys to snack foods, everything. And the need now, one of the big needs is for cardboard boxes to put stuff in, paper bags because we're not using plastic for obvious reasons, not because of huge environmental care, but it's so impractical. So there's many, many needs for immediate need and from here on. And our Jewish community here is extremely active. We're, we ourselves in our family are reform, which is English liberal, and we belong to the temple, which has the largest reform congregation, I think in the southwest, in, pretty much in the country. We've got thousands of families belong, and we're a fantastic congregation. You know, every individual counts. We're not uh, sort of mass. We don't care about you. The Federation with a thrift shop, and all the counseling services they provide, Federation. There's a lot of Jewish money in the city, and it's pouring into donations. Jewish communities coming through as usual. Jane, you've really given us an insight into what is happening in Texas at the moment, but the observant amongst our listeners may recognise that your accent doesn't sound very Texas, very, very American, should we say. And therefore, do you ever 
live in, shall we say, fear, trepidation, knowing that you've come from a country such as the UK, where, let's be honest, the worst we have to put up with once in a while, yes, indeed, is flooding, but certainly not on the scale that Texas has seen recently. Do you ever live a little bit sort of in trepidation of the weather that you could potentially face since moving to America yourself? Never. Never. I lived first in Chicago and it was blizzards. We moved here. Our temperature goes to the upper 90s from, say, mid-July until, well, until now. This is a cool week in the upper 80s. I can't remember how you translate to Celsius. Um, I think we know what upper 80s is. And that's you know nice and warm. Yeah. So. Well, we're actually approaching tornado season. Where we are in Texas, we're not particularly prone to tornadoes, but they're another terrible weather situation. Look, we could have awful weather and we don't worry. We all have, we're all blessed with air conditioning, good resources, the shops open, you know, till late in the evening. None of the things that used to be a problem, say, a generation or two ago. It's very comfortable living as we do in Texas. We love it. Well, I think I speak for all of us when I just say keep up the good work. And obviously, we have nothing but admiration for all of those who are trying to help in the relief effort in Texas. And just thank you very much indeed for taking the time to speak to us today. Jane Manasta, expat who now lives in Texas and has witnessed some of the devastation caused by Hurricane Harvey. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition of the programme, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. And they'll be discussing an item that you heard in the news just now with Viv, which questions who has the right to criticise Israel. This off the back of the first official Welsh Tory delegation to Israel. Now, obviously, we need to make it very clear, and Clive will do so later as well, that the Welsh Tories have not necessarily criticised Israel. This is just merely their first delegation. The point being is that we want to know who has the right to criticise Israel if they haven't been there themselves. Also in this episode, we'll hear Tony Honickberg talk to one Judith Silver, who will be telling us about a film entitled Memory Song, which looks at the amazing work that the Liberal Jewish Synagogue in St. John's would have been doing to help onset dementia patients. And it just so happens that that film also happens to be award-winning. We'll find out more about that a little later on. But first, before all of that, can you believe it's that time of year again when we start talking about the Hampstead and Highgate Literary Festival? Well, our arts editor Kate Fulton has gone to find out more for us, and she is in fact at JW3. Is that right, Kate? Yes, I am, Phil. Thank you. I'm at the JW3 right now talking to Claire Berliner, who is one of the arts and culture programmers at JW3, because Claire's been very involved with the Hampstead Highgate Literary Festival, which is coming up shortly on the 14th of September. Claire, what is your involvement? I'm co-director of the festival and I've been putting it together for two years now since it came over to JW3. It used to run from London Jewish Cultural Centre and we've got a great programme this year. We're really excited about it. And for those of us who don't know, what is the Hampstead Highgate Literary Festival meant to achieve? What is it? Well, it's been going for nine years and it's celebrating the rich cultural particularly literary heritage of the area which goes back centuries 
So there is a lot to talk about and a lot to celebrate. And it's exciting as a thing that we do here from JW3 because it's one of the few things that's not just Jewish. It's for the whole community. It's placing us at the heart of Hampstead and Highgate and our local community. Who's going to be coming? What's What happens? Is there a sort of, is it like a, an open festival or other events? How does it work? There are a few free events that people can just come along to. So there's two art exhibitions going on. We're, uh, we're showing Nicole Fari's portrait sculptures. She's obviously really well known as a fashion designer, but she has recently given that all up and become a portrait sculptor. And she has got lots of portraits of writers, some from life and some she's done of writers that she admires or that her husband, David Hare, has been adapting the works of like Chekhov and Ibsen. So we're going to have those busts here in the foyer alongside paper cuts by the poet Sophie Herxheimer. She has a new book coming out of poetry called Welcome to England. Is that your German accent? <laughs> or, or, the, or was it actually called that? It's actually called that. It's written in the voice of her grandmother. And it's about her grandmother's experience of, of being in England and being in, in London. And she's written the poems and she's also illustrated it and with paper cuts. And she's also creating a specially commissioned paper cut. And a paper cut, just to be sure, those are the things that you, you fold over and over and then people cut them quite cleverly and you open them up and three cuts and you've suddenly got a silhouette of Beethoven or something so I'm not sure <laughs> how technically she does it yes it is it's a image cut out of paper and it looks brilliant so we'll have that in our window and then we've got a series of events over four days we open with a celebration of Leonard Cohen we've got an a gorgeous lineup of musicians who are paying tribute to Leonard Cohen who actually wrote his first book in his first novel in Hampstead in a room above Hampstead High Street so we're paying tribute to him and we've got another event celebrating Dorothy Parker who is the legendary wit she became famous in the 1920s in New York but she led a fascinating life and she wrote some amazing things so we're having a Friday night dinner celebrating Dorothy Parker and, and the Algonquin Round Circle, who were her her cronies. And who's the Friday night dinner for? For anyone that wants to come, it's open to everyone. We will say Kiddush, but <laughs> only the people that want to say Kiddush can say Kiddush. Otherwise, we've got a cappella jazz from vocal harmony group 3Bop, and we've got two actors who will be performing Dorothy Parker's work and some of the work of the Algonquin Round Circle. And so that will be lots of fun. And then the, the main day of the festival is on the Sunday, 17th of September. We've got a full lineup, starting with Julia Hobsbawm talking to Norina Hertz about the age of overload, which we are currently in, and how to stay fully connected, how to negotiate the, this crazy world that we're currently living in. <laughs> so what else is happening on the Sunday? We've also got the wonderful Claire Tomlin coming to speak to Alex Clark. And she is best known as a literary editor and a biographer and she's written best-selling biographies of Dickens and Austin and all sorts of people but she is now turning her attention to herself and her own life which is a fascinating life. She was building a career as a single parent of four children because she was widowed early 
and she was building that career in the 50s and 60s, which was challenging for a woman and particularly a woman who's got four kids to look after. So she's going to talk about her life and putting that life down on paper and the differences between talking about herself and talking about other people. And then we've got the wonderfully funny Stuart Heritage, who is a blogger and Guardian journalist. And he has written a book about his brother. It's a biography of his brother. It's called Don't Be a Pete. (laughs) But really, it's about masculinity. It's about family dynamics and sibling rivalry. And it's really, it's very, very funny, but it's also very warm and affectionate. I think his brother's all right with it. (laughs) <laughs> I hope he is. Well, that sounds so far like an amazing array. I mean, I can see there's lots more on this brochure in front of us, but won't be able to discuss everything. This must have been huge for you to put on. How did you go about doing it? Oh, wow. It's a long process of seeing what's out there, what's coming out around the time of the festival, but also throughout the year and thinking about our audience and the fact that we're in London and celebrating London, that The event that I'm really excited about is London Lit Live, which is a celebration of the city through literature and music. And we've got a whole load of writers from every background. It's being sponsored by Amal, who are a Muslim cultural organization. And that's going to be a kind of literary cabaret. So that's exciting and and a, a great way to celebrate the city that we're in. Are most of these events that we've been discussing ticketed events you need to actually buy in advance? You do, and we've got a special offer. If you buy, if you buy three tickets, you get twenty percent off. And it's just—I think it's just worth getting your tickets and coming along and seeing what you discover along the way. For those of us who are either not very organised or not able to, is it possible to pitch up on the day and see what's on? It is. Leonard Cohen sold out already, so it is very much worth booking your tickets in advance. But you you can definitely come along on the day and see what's available. Will people be staying all day? I mean, not wanting to be too kind of obsessive about food, but I'm going to ask, (laughs) is there going to be food around during the day? Is it kosher food? Can people kind of come for the day? Of course, and I hope they will. We've got events starting on the Sunday. We've got events starting from 11 all the way through to the end of the day. And we're obviously in JW3. And so there's Zest, which is a lovely restaurant and cafe. So people can come and eat and listen and engage is it for all the members of the family i'm just thinking people come with family members or children older folk is it is it sort of something for everybody we haven't got any specific children's events as part of the festival but because it's at jw3 there are lots of children's events going on in the building there's arts and crafts that they can get involved in and and it's also just a nice place to be it really is well good luck with it i hope it all goes well and uh, be seeing you there back to you phil Fantastic. Thank you for that, Kate. I can't help but think now that I've just got this feeling I want to go and curl up and read a nice book. Hmm. Anyway, there you go. For more information on the Hampstead and Highgate Literary Festival 2017, you can always find a link at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. 
Coming up in just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Don't forget, you can always tune into the live stream of the Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summer Time. And you will find that on our Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views. And that's also the way that you can get in contact with us, as well as Twitter, which is at Jewish Views UK. Or you can always email us studio at jewishviews.co.uk. And we always love to hear from you. So please do feel free to tell us what you think about any of the subjects featured on this show. Now, community editor Diana Toman is away this week, so in her stead we have sent Tony Honigberg along to Liberal Synagogue in St John's Wood. Tony. That's right, Phil. I'm at St John's Wood Liberal Synagogue in London, where their work helping individuals in the early stages of dementia has been documented in an award-winning film. To tell us more about it, I'm joined by Judith Silver, who is the singing leader for the Minds Group, which is featured in the film, which is called Memory Songs, and it's been made by filmmaker Lucy Kay. It scooped the Grand Jury Awards, Hearts and Minds and Soul Awards in the prestige Rhode Island International Film Festival in a category recognizing films that reflect the Jewish experience. Judith. Please tell us how you got involved with the film. Well, actually, what happened was a very dear friend of mine called Anna Johnson, who I've known for many years and we're in a singing teachers network together. She was the person who Lucy was in contact with. And it was my friend Anna who put Lucy and me in touch with each other. Actually, originally, because Anna thought that Lucy might be interested in my Companion Voices project. And I had a very long conversation with Lucy in which we figured out that actually singing for the mind would be a great subject for a film. And Companion Voices at that stage wasn't quite ready to have such a project going on. How long ago was this? Uh, I guess it was in the early part of last year because we did the filming in May 2016. The film covers elderly people, most of them I think uh, certainly over 80 maybe even into their early 90s. And some of them live such diverse and rich lives and are now living with this dementia. Do you know what the backgrounds are of some of the people? A lot of what I know about that, I've learned from Lucy's film. For me, going in as the singing leader, I love to just deal with people exactly as they are right now. And it's been a revelation, really, to see in the film all the different strands of people's lives that I haven't known I understand we have, there was a footballer and someone, a racing driver. The translator, definitely, interpreter. How does that dementia affect them in such a way? Do they remember anything of their past life experience? Or do they forget that altogether? Every case is different. Every individual is different and each manifestation of dementia. What do you think the effect is that it has on the individual? Yeah, as I say, it's different in every single case. There's a wonderful image that the Alzheimer's Society use when they do their trainings, which is that if you think of it like a filing cabinet or a bookcase, building up from the bottom, if that's the early stages of somebody's life, those books or files are very, very stable. And then as the years have gone by, things that they've learned or experienced later might become the first things to go. And so that's how we find that sometimes people who can't have a conversation or even remember the names of their family members might still remember every word of a song that they learned in primary school. 
because that is so, so deeply embedded in their early memory. And you'll see in Lucy's film, Lucy has absolutely captured the genuine joy that we share in these singing circles. I think, I think she has a passion for this type of film anyway, from yeah. what I've seen on her website. It's to deal with human nature and the human being. Where can the film be seen? It's not on general release yet. So Wednesday, the 6th of September, it's called Open City Documentary Festival 2017. And it starts at 6.15pm. Judith, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's really a pleasure. Uh, As you can hear, Phil, really incredible work that they're doing here at St John's Wood Liberal Synagogue and clearly a very well-deserved award for the film. Well, it certainly sounds like it, Tony, and bravo, say all of us. Thank you very much indeed to you and, of course, to Judith Silver there, talking to Tony Honickberg about Memory Songs, the award-winning, as we've heard, film that looks at the work that the Liberal Jewish Synagogue in St. John's would do with patients with onset dementia. I would also like to mention at this stage that we were initially hoping to speak to Lucy Kay herself, That's absolutely not to say that we didn't love speaking to Judith, but unfortunately Lucy isn't very well at the moment, so we couldn't possibly let the moment pass without wishing her a very speedy recovery. And by the way, if you want to find out more about companion voices that Judith mentioned, go to her website, judithsilver.com. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. The subject for this edition is based on the news we heard with Viv earlier. The Welsh Conservatives have made their first official delegation to Israel, with many of their delegates visiting the country for the first time. Let's get us thinking. Should anyone who has never been to Israel have the right to criticise it? I should make it clear that we're not aware that any of the aforementioned delegates have openly criticised Israel. We're merely basing our discussion on their visit. Jeremy, let's start with you. How would you feel about someone passing a comment on Israel, knowing that they hadn't actually seen it for themselves? I would say that if the person has never actually never been there, not, not informed about Israel, then it's unlikely that their criticism is going to have a great deal of substance. The key thing is how well informed are they? Now, you can be informed about Israel without necessarily having gone there. But I think if you're reliant on what is often very sensationalist material in the news, headlines that you've seen, where you've not actually gone beyond simply looking at those to actually find out about the facts for yourself, if you've never travelled to the country, if you've not at least tried to get some balance in terms of the information that you're given, you're likely to simply be repeating what is often very one-sided, what is very often ignorant and misinformed opinion about Israel. So I'm not happy, I'm not comfortable with the idea of having a right to criticise. I don't like using the word right. I just think that 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 sort of sounds almost legalistic. I think that people, of course, people have the right to say things, but it's a question of whether they're informed. What do you think, David? Yeah, I think what Jeremy has said is 
makes good sense. But, you know, what puzzles me is that whenever it's Israel, people have strong opinions and nobody will get excited or have any comment if a delegation is going to Denmark for the first time, or if they're going to Sweden, if they're going to Gibraltar or anywhere else. But whenever it comes to Israel, Clive, they have opinions. And, and I think if we dig deep into the reasons, it doesn't always make pleasant listening. It's to be welcome that the Welsh are going, as you probably know, the Conservative Friends of Israel regularly are taking delegations of members of Parliament to Israel, so are the Labour Friends of Israel. So it's to be applauded that they're going. And whatever conception or perception that they've had of Israel in advance of their trip, I know for a fact that when they come back, that will change and they'll come back and say, what a great country. But yeah. pe people often make, I think as Jeremy said, people will read things and they'll read different comments, different items, different viewpoints, and we'll still make a decision and criticise based on those viewpoints without ever having been there. And you're right, once they've been there, then the criticism often stops. Not all the time. I know people that have been to Israel and still come back and criticise. There was a politician that I interviewed once many years ago. I won't say who he is, but he said to me, I will never go to Israel because I think it's a... I think he used the word fascist. I hope I'm not making that up, but he said it was a very right-wing country. Yeah, but why are they making these these judgments? I mean, look what's going on in all parts of the world, and nobody says, oh, we'll never go to Zimbabwe, we'll never go to Rwanda, we'll never go to any of these countries in Africa, which some have a dubious uh, ways of life. In the, in the way they look after their human rights. But when it comes to Israel, they've got an opinion and it gets even further. Why is Israel being demonized? There's no way that the, the politicians in Israel would come and discuss with us or come with bold statements how we should handle the, say, the Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland problem. You know, they, they, they mind their own business. Our lot don't. And there's something very, very fundamental there. And I think probably we know the answers. And what you're saying, actually, with that example, a terrible double standard as well, because someone can strongly disagree, for example, with, the, with the, the government in power. And I don't think the word fascist, of course, the word fascist doesn't apply to Israel's government. It, there are a small number of extremists who have extreme views that one could use that term. But I mean, ultimately, you can disagree with the colour of the government, but you don't, that doesn't mean you would never travel to the country, never see the countrymen, never actually visit. And the double standard is that you might disagree, for example, with Russia's government, as I do, or disagree with the, with China's government, or disagree with Cuba's government. That doesn't mean you would never go to that country. So would you I, go to North Korea? No, they wouldn't let I, him in. <laughs> I, I, I would, if, if it was possible to go, I would be fascinated to go, because I would actually want to see as much of the country as it would be possible to see, as, as much as I would be allowed to. Again, I fundamentally disagree with the regime in power doesn't necessarily mean that I have no sympathy with a lot of the people who live there for example or that I wouldn't want to actually see the country but isn't it interesting Jeremy that with what is going on in North Korea with the publicity or the bad publicity every single day about the regime there nobody is coming out with great proclamations we're definitely to go we are anti-North Korean mm. but people do come out and say we're anti-Israel I just can't put my finger uh, on I it. Don't, I don't think, to be honest with you, that that's a really very fair comparison. Perhaps not. Because, I mean, <laughs> most people are extremely worried about what's happening in North Korea and make it very, very clear. I don't think people walk around saying the same sort of things about Israel, even people who are anti-Israel. But what about... I mean, people criticise... Saudi Arabia, let's say, because they won't allow women to drive or, or they'll chop someone's hand off. Are we allowed to criticise them, even though we haven't been there, 
but we are not allowed to criticise Israel, even though we haven't been there. I think there's a reason to that, Tony, and that we're very touchy. We're very sensitive about Israel. And when a politician comes along from and goes to France and says, bonjour, or whatever, or he comes to Germany and says, guten tag, nobody cares. But the moment they say shalom, the whole country is excited because it's like this. there's an identity there. So we are very touchy. I work, as you know, I'm also in the football business. And when we take out a team to Israel, I'm more sensitive, highly sensitive about everything. Everything needs perfection. I don't worry about when a team goes to Belgium or when a team's playing in Switzerland. But when it comes to Israel, we are so sensitive that if they criticize the meal because it's cold, I feel uncomfortable. Feel, yeah. And this is part of the sensitivity that we've grown up with well, in supporting Israel on a daily as basis. Jews, as Jews, that's what we are. We are sensitive about it, of course. So what you're all saying really is that this discussion, we're, we're just being super sensitive about it. We are, it yeah. And probably with good well, reason. You can be super sensitive if, for example, every single criticism is automatically illegitimate or every criticism is automatically evidence of speaking to anti-Semites and self-haters. And there are there are some people who will literally say that. You know, every criticism is automatically illegitimate. But unfortunately, if you look at the narrative, the narrative is so often skewed so heavily against Israel, it's so disproportionately biased, and it's so venomous at times that we do absolutely have the right to blanch a lot of the things that we're hearing yeah. and let's to correct take, the things we're let's hearing. Let's take a good example of that because recently, as you know, there were people who were accusing Israel of being like an apartheid country. Well, the accusation of apartheid is, is completely wrong regardless of what's happened in, in the Golan, which has been annexed, if that's what you're talking about. Yes. The accusation of apartheid is completely wrong. It's wrong if you're talking about the position of Arabs within Israel who despite the disadvantages that some have, despite the lack of equality and despite discrimination which does exist, still affords them political equality, all kinds of opportunities that you would expect in a democracy, but their position isn't perfect, but the state is doing a lot to improve them. The comparison with apartheid South Africa is, is mendacious and illegitimate. And it's also true of the position of the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. They can't vote in Israel, but that's because they vote for Fatah and for Hamas. Correct. But why is it that it's always with Israel that this particular issue raises its head? Because when Russia moved into Ukraine not that long ago and they annexed Crimea, and they literally took Crimea by the scruff of the neck and said, you're back with us now, chaps. And yes, there was a little whimper here and there, and a couple of politicians to the left of the parties came out with a couple of remarks. But within a week, it's, it's gone. It's, it's about. dead and buried. People it, it, have forgotten about it. Well, and you it, could say exactly the same about the Israelis who have settled in parts of Palestine, which is belonging to Palestine. I mean, not many people talk about that now, do they? No, they don't. I mean, if you ask me my personal opinion, I would say I'm actually not in favour of it. Also remember, you, uh, Jeremy just mentioned about the discrimination, a little bit of discrimination maybe against some Israeli Arabs, although they have voting rights and everything else, because of their financial situation maybe. But there, of course we have to remember there are a lot of Israeli Jews who are in dire straits and in the similar positions. People can't criticise and say Israel is doing this against the Arabs in Israel because then it's not only the Arabs in Israel that are suffering, the Israeli Jews are suffering as well. Yeah, and the point about that, of course, is that 
poverty can be the result of structural factors, institutional factors. Discrimination, where it does exist, as, a, as it does in Israel, is institutional, not constitutional. What I mean by that is, is that there's a set of factors that are social and economic that explain, for example, why there is less equality for Arabs in certain respects than Jews. And also among Jews, there are some sections of Jewry within Israel that have more opportunities than others. But none of that is because of the law. None of that is because of, of a law that dates back from the founding of the state that basically says these advantages, disadvantages for one group are set in stone. Exactly. Whereas with apartheid, it was constitutional. Yep. Black people in South Africa were disadvantaged because of the law, because, because of something of set color. in stone, not because of some institutional factor that could have been changed over time. That's mm. a massive difference. Yeah, but what gets me, Jeremy, is that in Israel, they do so much good. There's so much to be proud of. And I've said it before, that if I wasn't Jewish, I'm pretty sure that I I would be very pro-Israel. My wife thinks perhaps I wouldn't be, who knows. But I think I would be because I think they do so much good and there's so much achievement and they're in the world of science, finance, music, everything. And you only have to go to the Hadassah Hospital, the Shari Tzedek Hospital in Israel. And there, Tony, you'll find a very, very equal society. Believe you me, I've seen that. your skin color doesn't matter, no. your religion doesn't matter, and whether you're Palestinian, Arab, or whatever. And Israel, as you well know, Clive, have been bringing people from over the border from Lebanon during this Syrian and war from, yeah. and taking them to hospitals in Haifa to yes, try and keep true. them alive. There was a case And recently. no, but that's, believe you me, that won't even get small but print. But to come was, back to the original question, which was, is it right for people who've never been to Israel to criticize Israel? Surely it's right, just as it, it was absolutely right for us to criticize the Russians, as you said, when they walked into Ukraine, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be there to criticize. In the same way, you don't have to be in the West Bank to criticize the Palestinians. But it helps, obviously, if you are there. What I'm saying is the key thing is you've got to be informed. You mustn't just rely, as you I said at the start, on a headline or on a, or, or on a clip from the news. But how, how, do, do, how many people all, actually read the headline and don't read the story? And that's it. But we all do that all the time. We all criticize all sorts of people all but, the time. But Israel gets the biggest share of criticism as a small nation in the whole world it's always Israel which perhaps makes the headlines. Nobody would criticise Holland because possibly 40 years ago in Indonesia when they were governing the place, the way they treated the Moluccans or whatever, it wouldn't even enter your table but it's fashionable today to knock israel at all levels of it, society it's fashionable to be anti-zionist and anti-semitic yeah. let's be honest and they equate the two as separate but we know Is it's it all fashionable? i think it's because, oh, going over it, the, over it's the, the top we're very touchy who i am i think it is fashionable i've been i've been at dinner tables and people have run down the turks and said the current president of turkey is an evil man he is turkish people will say to you that's a lot of rubbish yeah they love him yes they do some do but i said that's only one side of the turks that love him what about the other side that don't of course but they have every right to, to argue about because it. they're turks and therefore surely people have every right to argue about israel but the difference the difference and it's a crucial one here is that there isn't a global movement to delegitimize turkey there are obviously a lot of people that don't like erdogan and i'm sure that we would be among them but there isn't a global movement to boycott turkey there isn't a global movement to delegitimize or demonize turkey whereas there is such a movement in respect of Israel among big sections of academia, culture. And, and they get a very receptive audience. We're touchy, Clive. How do you know that? Because I've been around a couple of years and I've seen it. I work in, um, in a very much also a non-Jewish environment. 
especially in the sports world, I've seen it. I've seen it, and perhaps I'm over-touchy, I'm over-sensitive, but it's latent. It's not on the surface, it's just lying underneath. But there are a group of people that, 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 that just love to criticise. But nobody criticises Belgium. At this current time, <laughs> there are people who, maybe not Belgium, but criticise the European people because they because of Brexit. Are you saying that's that's wrong? No, because I no, because Brexit is an issue prevalent right at this moment in time in our lives, affecting us. I mean that word Brexit was only invented about a year ago. So it's 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 new in our in our yeah. psyche. Yeah. I would say look, Israel is not immune from criticism. It shouldn't be immune from criticism. It's a democracy. It certainly and, shouldn't. But no. you've got to also look at the level of proportionality here. And the correct comparison is is Israel getting more criticism than another country that is embroiled in a similar conflict situation? And the answer is yes. It is, because there is a global movement to boycott and delegitimize, which is unique. It's sui generis. But there are there are many people who who long to go to Israel. You as a travel agent probably have lots of non-Jewish people who want to go to Israel and visit Israel. Absolutely. And we love we love them. We like non-Jewish clients to go because it gives me personal professional satisfaction. So let's sum up. I think What's your take? Have we over-exaggerated? I wouldn't have said over-exaggerated, but you have exaggerated. But there we are. Uh, you have every right to do so. That's why we're here to do it. So thank you all very much indeed. And Tony, and I would like to thank our guests, journalist and author, Jeremy Habadi and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. It's one of the words in the Torah and the Bible which most fascinate me and I think is most relevant. Admittedly, it comes in the context of lost animals. If you come across your brother's stray donkey, something unlikely to happen in northwest London, but you never know. The Torah says... If you come across something your brother has lost or even your enemy has lost, lo tuchal lehit aleim, you cannot pretend that you didn't see. You're not to turn a blind eye. This verb, lehit aleim, to hide yourself away, comes again at one of the most poignant moments in the Jewish year, in the Haftarah from Isaiah on Yom Kippur morning, where Isaiah asks, what is the kind of fast that God wants? It's to feed the hungry to clothe the naked, to bring the oppressed home and not to hide from our own flesh. Now our language is full of idioms about doing the opposite. You say, turn a blind eye, close your eyes to it, behave as if you didn't notice. Here in the Torah and in Isaiah, we are being asked to be alert aware, acutely sensitive to the needs of people around us and to behave accordingly. God is not a shutter, but an opener of our eyes and of our heart. We bless God every day or rather ask of God to open our eyes, pokeach ivrim, and we ask God, umal et levavecha, to open our hearts so that we are sensitive to and aware of the situations and the needs of those around us. Isn't it funny how it just takes a few words from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg to really make you sit up and listen 
and think about our place in the world and remind ourselves that actually we do have a duty to help others, to con alarm and all that. It's the moral fibre of our very religion. So thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that is all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much indeed to our guests, Jane Manaster, who was telling us about the Texas flooding and the Jewish relief efforts, Claire Berliner, the co-director of Hampstead and Highgate Literary Festival, talking to Kate Fulton, Judith Silver from the Liberal Synagogue in St. John's Wood, telling Tony Honigberg about her involvement in the film Memory Songs, as directed by Lucy Kay. And thank you very much indeed to all our other contributors, and of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.